Hello, everybody. This is Jennifer Matteris, and before I start the podcast, I'd just like to take care of a few things as per usual. First of all, I'd like to say a quick thank you to Justin, Dee, Dina, Jamie, and Jennifer, all of whom have contributed to the Kickstarter. I really appreciate your help, and all of you will be getting to choose the January episodes. Uh, Jennifer might have to wait until February, depending on how quickly I can get those episodes out, but... Please be patient with me about messaging you to find out which disasters you'd like me to do. Um, I'm in high-powered research mode right now. Um, as soon as I get this episode recorded, I have to dive right into researching the next episode so I can get it done as soon as possible. And I also have to work tonight at my night job, so uh, I should be messaging you this weekend to ask what you'd like me to cover. If I don't, which is possible, considering what an airhead I can be sometimes about commenting and responding, just go ahead and email or message me however you'd like and tell me what you'd like to hear about in January. As for everyone else, please think about contributing to the Kickstarter so that I can improve the podcast and make it the best that it can be. You can find the link on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or just by searching Kickstarter for Disaster Area, a podcast. There's I think 19 days left at this point to contribute and every little bit helps. Please also share a link to the Kickstarter if you can. The more people who hear about it, the more people who may discover the podcast and want to join in. This is sort of a Christmas present to myself. This is literally the only thing that I want for Christmas is to be able to make this podcast better and to not be using the bare bones system I have right now of recording podcast episodes. So um, please help out if you can, however you can. Thank you so much, guys. And with that in mind, thank you very much for listening and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 22, Avianca Flight 52, January 25th. 1990. 73 deceased, 85 injured. The passenger officer in the front seat of the ambulance was our chaplain and member, Father Jim Bowman, and the first thing that I remember, before I even looked out the window, was him utter an expletive, and I figured if a priest was uttering an expletive, we had something substantially more than a Piper Cub down in Cove Neck. First Assistant Fire Chief Anthony DiCarlo, Oyster Bay Fire Company Number 1, about the night of January 25, 1990. On November 28th of this year, Lamia Flight 2933 crashed just outside of Medellin, Colombia. What's notable to most people is the fact it carried the Chapecoense soccer team out of Brazil and that the tragedy which cost the lives of over 70 people effectively wiped out the team. But what caught my attention were the stories of what the pilots reported before the crash. They were running out of fuel and the power was going out. But they didn't declare an emergency, not officially. And by the time the air traffic controller realized the problem was as severe as it was, it was too late. The reason it struck me is because so many of the emerging facts about the tragedy remind me of another crash. Avianca Flight 52, which fell from the sky on January 25th, 1990, in Coveneck, New York. Now, Avianca Airlines is the national airline of Colombia and was founded all the way back in 1919. It's the largest airline in Colombia and the second largest in Latin America. It's also the second oldest airline in the world after KLM, which makes it the oldest airline in the Western Hemisphere. Its first flight was transporting 57 pieces of mail between Barranquilla and Puerto Colombia. There's actually a really neat old black and white photo on, on Wikipedia of one of their first planes. This is a really tiny little plane in the 20s. It's really, it's really interesting to kind of see what uh, commercial air, air flights started as. Now, in 1990, Avianca was flying for 707 flights a week from Colombia to New York. There have been flights between Colombia and the U.S. since 1946. It's been a very long relationship between the United States and Colombia. With Avianca Flight 52, uh, the plane in question was a Boeing 707-321B manufactured in 1967. It had been purchased by Avianca from Pan Am in 1977. And at the time of the crash, it had 16,000 flight hours. The plane carried four UT-3D-3B engines modified with a quote-unquote 
Hushkit to reduce noise pollution. Uh, there's several things that uh, personnel on these flights have to do to figure out uh, fuel use and and the calculations that they have to do. And with this hush kit, they would have to factor in a 5% fuel overburn and another 5% for the aircraft's age. So, you know, there's all these little factors that kind of add up that they have to um, do the math for. The autopilot on the plane also had some recurring issues, uh, including the altitude hold function. I mean, it wasn't any worse than any other uh, plane of its age. The weather on this particular day was uh, terrible, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. Um, air traffic control was tracking an enormous low pressure system approaching the northeast from the Great Lakes area. There was actually this huge weather system that spread all the way from the Gulf of Mexico to New England that was basically ruining the weather all the way up and down the east coast. Um, I live in Pennsylvania myself, and this kind of weather is, uh, you know, the kind of weather they, they would have been having that week. Um, if they were having what we're having right now, it's, um, it's kind of gross. Um, the weather on that particular day was uh, already at safe minimums for landing. It was getting a little hard for um, the flights to land. Um, they did have uh, fog close the main runway at JFK uh, in at one point during the day. All of this bad weather is leading to just these prolonged holding patterns and missed approaches. They've ground stops are happening for intermittent periods throughout the night and the, the day when um, they just they're just not letting anybody land or take off. Uh, by the end of the day, only one runway, 22 left, is still open, but. Air traffic control in New York was ordered to keep up a very high landing rate by Washington Center of 33 aircraft per hour, which, considering the weather, everything that's going on, everything that's busy, everything is backing up, this is kind of just, um, something's going to go wrong, basically. Um, however, it's much nicer weather in Colombia, from which Avianca Flight 52 was departing. At 1.10 p.m., Avianca Flight 52 leaves El Dorado International Airport in Bogota, five minutes ahead of schedule with 158 passengers and crew on board. The flight crew, uh, there were six flight attendants, and then there were three members of the flight crew. Uh, the captain was Lorenzo Cavieres. He had flown for 27 years with Avianca. He had 16,000 flight hours, 1,500 of those on the 707, and he had 478 hours of night flying experience on the 707 as well, with no record of prior accidents. Uh, he was a pilot in the Colombian Air Force Reserve and a member of the Colombian Airline Pilots Association. So he's a very focused and very uh, good pilot. Now, First Officer Mauricio Klotz had transitioned to the 707 the previous October. He'd only logged 64 flight hours so far on the 707, 13 of those at night. During the flight, uh, First Officer Klotz would actually be doing all of the radio communications. Uh, Captain Caviedes had scored satisfactory on a recent assessment of his English skills, but his English was actually not that good, and Klotz's was better, so basically uh, he was taking control of the, the radio and, and the captain was flying, and that was kind of an easy way for them to divide their resources and their knowledge. The flight engineer, or the second officer, uh, Moyano, he had been with uh, Avianca for 23 years. He had 10,000 flight hours, 3,000 of which were on the 707, and 1,000 of which were night flying on the 707. So this is not a bad crew. Uh, this would actually be the first time all three of these men would be flying together. So they hadn't really worked together as a team before. At 2.04 p.m., the flight has a stopover at Jose Maria Cordova International Airport in Medellin before continuing on to JFK International Airport in New York. Uh, flight 52 landed in uh, Medellin uh, with 67,200 pounds of fuel. Uh, the flight plan for the trip to JFK called for 55,520 pounds of fuel required uh, for the trip to JFK, 
just just to get there just be to get from Medellin to JFK they needed that much fuel then they needed 4,510 pounds of reserve fuel uh, 7,600 pounds of alternate fuel just in case they needed to get to their alternate airport uh, 4,800 pounds of holding fuel so you know just to kind of hang out in the sky you know whenever they um would need to wait that was what that was for and then 1500 pounds of taxi fuel which is basically the fuel that they need to uh taxi on the runway this would make a grand total of 73,930 pounds of fuel the dispatcher the dispatcher in medellin ordered a total fuel load of 78,000 pounds of fuel including 4,070 pounds of quote-unquote top off fuel uh, to bring up the plane's weight so it could take off from the planned departure runway. Then the captain and the dispatcher decided that they were going to use another runway to take off, which meant adding another 2,000 pounds of fuel. So they're just basically filling this plane. And the thing is that uh, you know, with these planes, you don't fill them up all the way with fuel. You fill them up as much as you need. You know, you figure out, okay, you know, it's like if you're taking a trip somewhere and you figure, okay, well, I need, um, you know, uh, $20 worth of gas to get there, but I need another, you know, $2 worth of gas just in case I, you know, need to pull off the inner state to go get McDonald's and I need another couple of dollars just in gas just in case I get lost and you know you add this up but you don't fill your entire tank and that's um but in this case I mean they were just filling up the uh plane with uh fuel uh more than enough fuel for it to get to JFK and the plane leaves Medellin at 3:08 p.m. Uh, the crew never requested up-to-date weather conditions for Boston, uh, for New York, excuse me, or for its alternate in Boston. Uh, the info that they had on the weather when they left Medellin was only, it was hours old. It was, you know, which in terms of flying up there is, it might as well have been months old or years old. It was, you know, it was not as recent as it could be. At 5.28 p.m., the plane enters the U.S. airspace of Miami Air Route Traffic Control Center at 35,000 feet and is advised to proceed northward at 37,000 feet. Uh, the flight was cleared to fly Atlantic Route 7 to the Dixon Navigational Aid and Jet Airway 174 to Norfolk. So they're just basically following the east coast up, the, uh, up to New York. The flight would enter into three different holding patterns in which it would spend a total of one hour and 17 minutes, um, you know, which I'm sure the, the people who were on board weren't happy about, but um, the first holding pattern was when it, when it got to Norfolk. It circled from 7.04 to 7.23. Then it moved on to the Boton intersection, which was near Atlantic City, and it stayed in this second holding pattern from 7.43 p.m. to 8.12 p.m. And then it moves on to the third holding pattern. The third holding pattern uh, is at the Cameron intersection where it would enter um, this, this holding pattern from um, 8.18 p.m. to 8.47 p.m. It was at 14,000 feet when it entered that holding pattern. It had been cleared to descend to there prior to arrival. It had kind of been going down at that point. Um, and it then descended further to 11,000 feet while still in this holding pattern. At 8.44 p.m., uh, New York um, air traffic control uh, advised an indefinite hold and for them to stay holding at Cameron's. So it's just, you know, they're just going around and around at this point. Um, during this holding pattern, air traffic control tells the flight crew to expect further clearance at 9.05 p.m. Expect further clearance basically means just, just hang out, wait, you know, just wait and hold for further instructions. The first officer at this point says, uh, well, I think we all need priority. We're passing, and then it gets unintelligible. You can't really tell what he says. Air traffic control says, Roger, how long can you hold and what is your alternate? The first officer says, yes, sir, uh, we'll be able to hold about five minutes. That's all we can do. Air traffic control says, Roger, what is your alternate? First officer, uh, we said Boston, but uh, it is full of traffic, I think. Air traffic control, say again your alternate airport. And then the first officer says, it was Boston, but we can't do it now. We 
we don't we run out of fuel now. So air traffic control responds to this discussion by allowing the flight to leave the third holding pattern at 8:47 to head toward JFK. It didn't push them all the way to the front of the line so that they could land, but they it just kind of brought them in so that they could um, start lining up with other aircraft to land. Uh, flight 52 is given ATC uh, instructions to place it in sequence, excuse me, for instru instrument flight rules approach to JFK. Uh, at 8.56 p.m., uh, the air traffic control advised the flight of a wind shear, which the first officer acknowledged. If you don't know what a wind shear is, a wind shear is a change in wind speed or direction on a relatively small scale. I mean, not like a huge blowing wind, but you know, something that's kind of localized. Uh, think about when you walk around the corner of a building and you encounter a really strong wind stream. That's a wind shear. Um, it's a very small wind shear. Um, when, you, when I say relatively small in terms of wind shear, it's usually, um, you know, it's not huge, but it's around a certain area. And then you have things like microbursts, which are kind of wind shear. Um, it really kind of devolves, but basically it's a strong wind in one spot. Um, wind shears can negatively impact a flight's control if they're encountered on takeoff or landing. Um, if you've ever um, heard of uh, Delta Flight 191 crashed in Dallas in 1985, killing 137. Uh, it actually um, attempted to land and then it entered a wind shear which pushed down on the plane and its uh, first passed over a highway and was so low that it struck a car with one of the engines and then it careened into some some oil well kind of things, the big metal things, and then it crashed. And there were only about um, 20 or th 25 people who survived, I believe. But that's the kind of thing that that, that, that can do to a flight. At 9.09 p.m., there's um, this exchange in the cockpit. The first officer says, they accommodate us ahead of an, and then the captain cuts him off and says, what? Uh, first officer says, they accommodate us. The second officer says, they already know we are in a bad condition. The captain says, no, they are descending us. To which the first officer replies, 1,000 feet. Captain, oh, yes. And then the second officer says, they're giving us priority. So from what you can tell from what they're talking about, you know, obviously they think that the air traffic control understand that their fuel is getting really low. Um, as they said before to the air traffic control, you know, we only have five minutes of, of, of uh, you know, we only have five minutes of fuel left. This is, you know, they think they've conveyed it well. Whether or not they have, we'll see. The crew begins to conduct an ILS approach on JFK uh, runway 22L. Um, they were number three to land following a 727 on a nine mile final approach. Um, JFK is, uh, it's, if you look at a picture of Long Island, it's um, in the bottom left hand corner basically. Um, and so, you know, they kind of circle around that area um, to try and uh, land. At 9.17 p.m., uh, JFK Tower in confirms the plane's airspeed of 140 knots and asks them to increase by 10 knots. The first officer uh, then conveys this to the flight crew, since he's sort of the, the go-between. This phrase gets repeated between the first officer and the second officer to the captain, which, you know, they keep saying 10 little knots more, just 10 little knots more. Ten, they say it three or four times to the captain, just 10 little knots more, 10 little knots more. And the captain snaps at one point, you know, just tell me things louder because I'm not hearing it. This is the kind of thing that you see on, on the, the, um, the transcript because the flight data, the flight um, uh, voice recorder, I can't seem to find a recording of that. I can seem to find a recording of the air traffic control rec um, recording um, on their end. So you hear what the air traffic controllers heard, but you don't hear what happened inside the cockpit. You do know what happened inside the cockpit, though, because there are transcripts aplenty to, uh, which show not only what was being spoken about in the cockpit, but what they were talking about to air traffic control, what air traffic control was saying to other planes. And it's clear from those transcripts that um, things were very busy. Um, air traffic control was treating them just like any other plane, really. And 
while they are treating them just like any other plane, except maybe, you know, understanding that, okay, maybe they might have an issue, you know, they don't seem to really be um, exploring that. Um, but also, the f flight crew thinks that the air traffic control understands the situation better than they do. This is what you get from that. And, and that the flight crew is getting more emotional than you hear from the recording, um, which I'll get to. We'll get to that. Um, so they clap, they capture the glide slope, which indicates the correct angle and position the plane needs to take, um, to land safely at runway 22 L. It's basically like a, um, a radio signal that goes to the plane, which says, okay, you have to stay, you know, three degrees up and, and land, you know, with the back end kind of, kind of a little lower than the front end so that, you know, you're at a safe angle. The crew, you know, begins to prepare. They're lowering the landing gear, they extend the flaps, and they begin the landing checklist. At 9.19 p.m., the tower clears them to land. Uh, the captain says, give me 50, and then he says, are we cleared to land yet? And the first officer says, yes, sir, we are cleared to land. At 9.20 p.m., the first officer notes they are, quote-unquote, below glide slope, which is not a good thing. Uh, 9.22 p.m., flight 52 is 3.2 miles from the approach end of the runway when the first officer says this is the wind shear. So clearly they're going through that spot where there is sort of a, a change in the, the wind direction and the wind speed. At 9.23 p.m., the whoop-whoop-pull-up alert, whoop-whoop-pull-up, Boop, boop, pull up. And from the ground proximity warning system goes off 11 times. You just hear that repeatedly. And if you've ever listened to any sort of um, cockpit voice recording, it is annoying, to say the least. Most of these alerts are supposed to be annoying. They're supposed to be annoying so that you know they're going on. And that's the sort of thing that you hear 11 times on that recording. Like you can't really listen to that recording because it's not online as far as I can tell, but um, it's on the uh, um, on the transcripts. And they get the glide slope warning that goes off four times. Just glide slope, glide slope, glide slope. That's what you hear. Uh, during all of this, the captain is asking, the runway, where is it? First officer says, I don't see it. I don't see it. And then the captain says, give me the landing gear up, landing gear up. The plane is 1.3 miles from the end of the runway and at only 200 feet altitude. At this point, the crew advises the tower they're executing in this approach. They hit the wind shear, you know, they can't see the runway, the weather is terrible, they're gonna fly around again. They are told by the tower that they need to contact air traffic control approach. Air traffic control, um, which is TRACON uh, for uh, New York and um, with traffic control, Trey Khan um, and and JFK Tower are two entirely different sets of people, um, so that's why they're getting passed back to air traffic control again. Uh, the tower is what you talk to when you, you're getting close to the the um, airport. If you're you know not at the airport anymore, you're going back to air traffic control again. At 9.25 p.m., uh, the New York TRACON controller says to greet this plane by, you know, that they started talking to again by saying, Avianca 052 Heavy, New York, good evening, climb and maintain 3000. The thing is that the flight does not have enough fuel at this point to make another landing attempt. The captain says, advise him we don't have fuel. The first officer says to ATC, climb and maintain 3,000, and uh, we're running out of fuel, sir. There's some more exchanges between um, the first officer and the air traffic control, kind of establishing things like heading and, and height of the aircraft. And then the captain says to the first officer, did you already advise that we don't have fuel? And the first officer says, yes, sir, I already advised him, 180 on the heading. We are going to maintain 3,000 feet, and he's going to get us back. A minute after this exchange, uh, Tracon says, an Avianca 052 Heavy, uh, I'm going to bring you about 15 miles northeast and then turn you back onto the approach. Is that fine with you and your fuel? The first officer responds, I guess so. Thank you very much. The second officer kind of responds to this and says, oh, that guy is angry. Uh, and... It, I can kind of get, get where he's coming from. You, if you hear that sort of thing, and especially if you hear it on the recording, it does kind of sound a little passive aggressive. Um, you know, is, is that fine for you in your field? <laughs> it doesn't really sound that bad, but it does kind of um, 
you know, it could be easily be taken as passive aggressive. But the thing is that, like I said, you can hear the what the air traffic controller hears. And at this point, the crew on Avianca Flight 52 thinks that they have conveyed very clearly they don't have enough fuel and they need priority. They ha- they're having a fuel emergency. They need to land. But um, when you listen to the recording and you hear the first officer respond to this exchange by saying, I guess so, thank you very much, there's no, there's no anxiety there. There's no... Um, there's no um, fear there. There's no, you know, there's no hesitation there. There's, there's nothing, there's no kind of really stress in there. He sounds more frustrated than anything else, you know, just kind of, I guess so. Thank you very much. It doesn't sound like um, he's in a situation that is stressful or, you know, dangerous that they really need to land this plane as much as they may say they do. Um, that's the thing, you know, they're hearing, you know, they're saying one thing and think that they are being heard, but on their end, on the, on the air traffic controller's end, it sounds a lot different than what the flight crew thinks they're conveying. It doesn't sound like they're having an emergency situation, particularly because nobody said the word emergency yet. The JFK Tower and New York Tracon are talking about the flight during all of this. At one point at 9.24 p.m., the tower tells Tracon, Avianca's missing due to the weather thing. Uh, At 9.33 p.m., uh, Tracon says to the tower, yeah, Avianca 52 lost an engine, and we're trying to find out why and get the personnel in fuel. At this point, um, at some time during this exchange, um, you know, the uh, first officer had said to uh, air traffic control, you know, we've lost two engines. Um, they have four engines on this plane, though. And the thing is that if they're running out of fuel and they lose two engines, that's okay. They're close to the airport. They can land. It's, you know, it's they're close enough to the airport where not having two engines is not a big thing on a plane with four engines or is not as big a thing as the rest of us would think it is. Um, but they're losing these engines because they're running out of fuel and with no fuel to run the engines, they're flaming out. Now, when the engines on a plane flame out, the power goes out. And so as these engines are starting to flame out, the power is starting to go out in the cabin. And these people who are on this flight, who've been in holding patterns, who've been um, flying around on this plane, have not really gotten any sort of feedback from the flight crew. Nobody has gotten on the, uh, uh, none of the flight crew have gotten on the PA to say, you know, we're having an issue, you know, we apologize for this, you know, you know, we're having an issue, please brace, you know, we just want to make sure you're okay. Nothing, none of this happens at no time. And another thing that happens at no time during the night does the first officer use the word emergency. Not at no time whatsoever. He uses the word priority, but not emergency. And I'll get into why that's an issue later on. At 9.33 p.m., the first officer says on the CVR, it is ready on two in response to the captain asking if he selected the ILS. This is the last thing on the flight recorder. After this, it cuts off. At this point, the engines are flaming out due to fuel starvation. There's one by one by one. Um, At 9.34 p.m., the final controller that they speak to asks the flight, "You uh, you have enough fuel to make it to the airport? They don't get an answer. At 9.34 p.m., Avianca Flight 52 crashes into the slope next to a private home in Coveneck, New York, 16 miles away from JFK. It clips several poles and trees as it goes down. Uh, there's a kind of an, a mock-up of this crash on um, the aircraft investigation episode about it, and it's, it's very quiet. And it just kind of, and then just lands. I mean, not lands, obviously, but, you know, hits the ground. Um, and it's not loud because the engines aren't running. The plane strikes the slope and comes to a stop 25 feet away from where it hits. 
It nearly strikes the home of Sam Tissenbaum. Instead, it just clips the corner of the home's wooden deck. It comes really close to hitting this house. The fuselage fragmented into three pieces. If, if you look at a picture of the crash, if you look at a picture of the wreckage from overhead, um, there's actually a, a photo, one particular photo that you can see. Um, in the picture, the four points of the plane, uh, the nose, both tips of the wings, and the tail are almost exactly where they normally are. Uh, the tail and the two wingtips are pretty much where they would be. And it's almost as if they fragmented at basically the last second. And then the cockpit had snapped off. Uh, the top of the plane kind of hit a ridge, a little bit of a ridge at the top of that, that slope. And so it hit at just the right angle where that piece sort of snapped off like a pencil tip and went flying about 100 feet. And it ended up in a, an unoccupied home. Um, in the photo that I saw from overhead, I mean, there's there's a lot of photos of this this um, crash site. In the photo, the home it's a little gray, it's a gray home, a little gray house, as at the top center of this photo. There is a driveway uh, right next to this house, going off to the across, you know, parallel to the top of the photo, um, on the right hand side. The uh, there's a road. Uh, parallel, almost kind of parallel to the to the bottom of the um, uh, photo, just right below the bottom of the photo. And then you have the plane. The plane, the wreck of the plane, is sitting in the middle of this, uh, in the middle of these two, this road and this house. It's right in the middle of these two. It is pointing toward the house. Um, it is sitting on this slope, and it's surrounded by trees. And it basically looks just like it came in for a landing, except it just kind of broke apart. The how the place where it is is you know it's not Kovnek is not a very you know it's not a big town. There's only 300 people in it. Um, you know, Long Island is different from, you know, Queens and Staten Island and all of this. So um, there's a reason, you know, they were really lucky that um, it landed where it did and it didn't hit a house um, or that it didn't kill anybody on the ground. Uh, as the plane is laying on this wooded slope in Cove Neck, uh, Tracon and the tower are still speaking to one another. Uh, Tracon tells the tower, yeah, we're not talking to Avianca any longer. He's 15 miles north of Kennedy. And then Terry Khan says, okay, so uh, if you get him, uh, he's Nordo. We don't know his altitude, what his problem was. He last reported losing an engine. And the tower's response to this is, oh, wonderful. It's not the best kind of a response to that sort of thing, especially considering they've, you know, kind of misplaced a plane, but uh, that's what it is. Uh, uh, pretty soon, you know, people start calling in from Kovnak to uh, get rescue. Uh, hundreds of emergency personnel would arrive at the crash site, which would soon provide more problems than assistance. Uh, police officer Hank LaBella was on patrol on Tennis Court Road, and so he was the first officer on the scene. There was also a New York paramedic who lived a half a mile away and got there early as well. When they got there, uh, most of the survivors were still strapped in. It would take a half an hour for rescuers to arrive more than that. 37 fire and ambulance companies and 700 or more Nassau County police officers showed up. Uh, some companies who weren't called arrived anyway. I mean, they just, uh, they just swarmed this place to help. Good intentions um, led to kind of bad execution. Um, the influx of rescuers were so great uh, that traffic began to block access to the site. The only way to get there was a single road, which just could not accommodate that many vehicles. Uh, many people traveling into the site just would park their vehicles and walk back to the site. So you know, it's kind of like a concert. You know, you just park your car here and then walk up. Um, as you can imagine, these abandoned vehicles made it difficult for ambulances, fire rescue, and other equipment to get to the site. You know, you, you're trying to get past, you know, vans and, and parked cars, all of these different things, and you really, you really can't. So, um, 
there was also an issue that fog grounded helicopters for two hours. So while all of this is going on, you're having, you know, it's, if you see pictures of that night, there's rain and there's fog and it's just, it's a miserable, dreary, disgusting day. And with the fog out, they can't even get helicopters in there. They can't get ambulances in there because the roads are blocked and they can't get helicopters in there because the fog is out. So they were eventually able to come though. And they did take 21 people who had been injured from the site. Communication also became really hard to do because radio frequencies in the area just became overwhelmed by how many people were there. Um, there was a Nassau County Medical Center um, surgeon, he was head of surgery, who was on site basically to do triage, to kind of say, okay, this person goes here, this person goes there, you know, kind of send people around. But um, the head of surgery couldn't direct patients as well as could be because a lot of the rescuers were radioing into the center instead of, uh, instead to ask where to send survivors. Instead of going to this head of surgery who was standing right there, they would radio in. And that was kind of, you know, that kind of added to the radio frequencies being just absolutely jammed. Some of these hospitals were getting more up-to-date info from the news footage than they were from the site. They really weren't getting the information that they needed um, from people who were there. 73 people would die in the crash of Avianca Flight 52. Uh, eight of the nine crew members died in the crash. The only survivor out of the crew was a, the lead flight attendant uh, who was sitting, I believe, in 22C. Uh, the captain in the first officer's seats did not have shoulder harnesses. Uh, the NTSB required them in 1980, but the International Civil Aviation Organization did not really address the issue. And so because of that, their seats didn't have these um, shoulder harnesses, which could very easily have saved them. But, you know, the interior of the flight deck was also very damaged. Uh, four of the five seats that were in there, there were three used by the crew and then uh, two observer seats. One of those observer seats and the three used by the crew were found lying outside of the flight deck. All three members of the flight crew uh, ended up dying in that crash. Um, 65 of the 149 passengers would die, including one of the 11 infants on board. Everybody on board received some sort of an injury. Uh, like I said, they really didn't have any sort of warning before the crash. Uh, nobody got on a PA and said, um, you know, fasten your seatbelts, brace, anything like that. So they really didn't see it coming. And then all of a sudden they were crashing. Only three of those who were found alive after the crash died of their injuries. So it was a small blessing. You know, it, was, it could have been a lot worse, um, especially considering how long it took rescuers to get there, how long it took them to get people out. Uh, it could have been a lot worse than it was, but to have only three of those people um, pass away of their injuries, it's a small miracle. Uh, like I said earlier, no one died on the ground. Um, you know, Kovnek being a small town, it's a lot different than, um, you know, in 2001, American Airlines Flight 587 struck the ground in Queens, which you might remember it was the crash that happened right after 9-11 where everybody kind of debated whether or not it might be terrorism and then it quickly became apparent it was, it was um, a mechanical issue. Uh, and then five died on the ground in that crash. Uh, and in 1960, TWA Flight 266 and the United Flight 825 collided over Staten Island, killing everyone on board, both planes. And then when the crash, um, when they crashed to the ground, six more people died. Uh, the only home that was really seriously damaged was unoccupied at the time. Um, you know, it, it was really lucky where it landed, especially when you consider you see the picture of the wreck, and it, it's literally, I mean, it is feet away from destroying um, Mr. Tizenbaum's house. Uh, there was a makeshift morgue along with a command center and two triage areas that were established in a nearby yard. Um, the home was owned by uh, John McEnroe, the tennis star, uh, his parents. So they asked for permission and they were allowed to um, set all of this up on, the, on their yard. There was a passenger named Astrid Lopez who was thought to be dead. Um, she was uh, very seriously injured and she just looked deceased. Um, she was placed with the other bodies, uh, but a rescuer heard her moaning and so they, they picked her up and they, they took her to the hospital. Many of those who survived were, you know, like I said, very seriously injured. Um, according to the lead flight attendants, um, you know, the flight crew 
didn't make an emergency announcement, tell the passengers to get into the price position. Um, the uh, the engines had already flamed out um, by the time the end of the flight occurred, and so the PA system didn't even have power at that point. So, and plus they were um, at that point concerned about you know they had missed a fl- uh, an approach and they had you know this fuel issue and they were um, wondering if air traffic control even understood what was going on. So they were a little preoccupied. There were some survivors who were found hanging from trees. Um, many people who had survived had found that their legs in, and ankles were seriously injured in the crash. Um, if you've ever sat in a plane seat and you look at the uh, seat in front of you, you'll notice how low the, the frame of the seat can be. Um, you kind of have to, this is why you kind of have to if you're in one of these crashes, it's entirely likely that your leg or your ankle is going to break um, because of these kind of bars that are right in front of you. Um, and that can be an issue. Um, you know, if it, you know, if it didn't happen in this case, but if the plane um, bursts in the flames, then, you know, you need to get out of that, that plane. And you can't do that if your legs and your ankles are broken. So, you know, these are the kind of things that investigators have to think about and make recommendations about when they're investigating a crash. Uh, the seats also snapped off or twisted downward and to the left, which caused hip and spine injuries. Again, it's another issue of these people need to get out of this plane. That should, you know, if you're mobile, you get out of the plane. And if you're not mobile, you're stuck in this plane. So if it crashes and bursts into the flames, you're stuck unless somebody pulls you out, which a passenger, you know, may do that, but they may also stay outside for their own safety. It, you know, either way, it's under, you know, it's understandable if they don't want to go back in to kind of drag you out. Survivors were sent to 14 local hospitals. Um, the first patient was removed from the wreckage 73 minutes after the crash. That's how long it took for people to get there and, and kind of start helping people out. Uh, the last patient would not be removed until four hours after the crash. By 3.30 a.m., all the survivors had been evacuated, though. New Yorkers New Yorkers are really good in a tragedy. Uh, they will come out of the woodwork to help. I mean, you have probably heard all of the stories related to 9-11 and, and donating everything from, from you know, blood to money. Um, I kind of um, always remember uh, Sarah Vowell, who wrote An Assassination Vacation and all of these other books. I'm talking in one of them, uh, I believe it was Assassination Vacation, about how, um, you know, she had gone to get things to uh, donate and had gotten toothpaste and ended up having, uh, because everybody else had bought the, all of the other toothpaste to donate, she had to give the ones for the sec- sensitive gums and it was just uh, for sensitive teeth sensodyne um but this is the kind of thing you know new yorkers are usually really good about this they were um showed up to donate food and blankets and a lot of them actually volunteered as spanish interpreters in the wake of the accidents to make it a little easier to speak to people who had had been injured one of the interesting things that happened in the wake of the crash was that uh people began to um, discover something about some of the people who had been injured in the crash. There was a man named Jose Figueroa and he was suffering from internal bleeding. So they took him to the hospital, they started performing surgery on him, and all the doctors are poking around in his stomach, in his in his midsection, um, to fix all of this internal bleeding. They found something, a few somethings, multiple bags of cocaine in his digestive tract. Jose Figueroa was a drug mule. At this point, they realize they have one drug mule. They may more than likely have more than one. So they start checking out other patients and they find Antonio Zuluaga. Uh, Zuluaga had a fractured spine, broken ribs, dislocated hip, and more than two dozen bags of cocaine in his system. Uh, These bags are, you know, it's two dozen bags, about an inch and a half to two inches long, um, and they're all filled with cocaine. Uh, the FBI had actually arrived on the crash site at one point uh, due to the concern that drug mules might possibly be on the plane. It's coming from Colombia. The, the you know the drugs are pretty rampant at that there, and a lot of drug mules do come from Colombia. So um, you know it wasn't really a surprise, but it was just something interesting in, in the wake of the crash. 
the um, uh, they would later be sentenced to prison. Figueroa served, uh, you know, he went, went for seven years to life. Uh, Zuloaga was sentenced to six years to life, uh, but they were um, eventually released and they were deported when they were released. The investigators arrived on the site and immediately noticed a very telling fact. There was no fire. In fact, it's really interesting. It's in the, the um, uh, NTSB report, and you go through this NTSB report, and it, all these very detailed um, bits of information. I mean, there's the, the, they detail every flight controller, um, air traffic controller that the plane talked to, and it's about a page and a half, two pages long of just information about air traffic controllers that these that this plane spoke to. And then you get to um, uh, the section on fire, and it just has a sentence: "There was no fire." They also note that the engines were not running when the plane struck the ground. It's something you can really notice. If the planes, if the engines are still moving, they're all filled with dirt. They, you know, they're all, um, they look a certain way and they just didn't look like that. So the investigators start, you know, taking piece of, pieces of evidence. Um, they removed the fuel gauges from the plane so that they could be examined. Uh, they took a flight log, which recorded the flight as having 80,000 pounds of fuel when it left Medellin. And they also removed the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder from the rack. Uh, it's probably one of the better things about it crashing the way that it did is that, you know, all of these things are very easy to find. Um, and they also kind of had an indication, much like with the Lamia flight, that the amount of fuel on board or lack thereof was an issue. So they knew what they were looking for. Uh, one issue which would come up was that the airline only assigned seats to a small number of passengers, which made determining seating of victims difficult. Those were, who were in assigned seats uh, were moving around the cabin to seat with, uh, sit with friends and family, too. So they weren't all where they were supposed to be, either. And these kind of things are what you want to know, because you want, want to be able to say, okay, well, you know, certain people were injured a certain way, certain people died a certain way, we need to know where they were sitting so we can know how that injury happened, so we can prevent it from happening to other people in other crashes. The NTSB would work with the DAAC, which is Colombia's uh, crash investigation agency, to find out what happened with the flight. The two agencies worked together. The plane was from Colombia, and it crashed in America, uh, in, in the United States. So the two countries um, worked together, which is what happens a lot in these um, in these uh, situations. Um, sometimes the manufacturer of the plane will also join in. The language used was a really big issue. This is kind of a a flight where uh, a, cl a crash, excuse me, where um, a lot of the problems come down to communication issues. Everything in this um, that uh, was said between air traffic control and the tower and the plane was scrutinized, and for good reason. Um, when the pilots told uh, air traffic control that they only had five more minutes of fuel while in their final holding pattern the timing may have made the air traffic controller believe they only met five minutes until they needed to divert to their alternate not that they only had five minutes total but the problem is that air traffic control did not clarify this one way or the other they didn't ask for more information you know they didn't say well what do you mean by that five minutes more of what um do you have do you need to land now you know they didn't you know they didn't kind of poke them um understandably so though it was a very busy night if you look at the transcript these air traffic controllers are just trying to juggle the weather and the amount of planes in the air. All of these planes that are holding, they have so much to do. And it's very, it was may have been a little difficult for them to kind of focus on the fact that um, what they were hearing was a little vague. And so they made assumptions and kind of went with them. There was also the question of the difference between using the word priority and using the word emergency. That was another thing that struck me about the um, commonality between this crash and the Lamia crash. One of the first quotes that I saw, and I could not find the news story that said this, which really makes me angry now, but um, it was a quote of one of the things that the pilot said in the Lamia flight, which is, we need priority. And that word struck me because I already knew of this crash and the fact that the pilot saying, the um, excuse me, the, the first officer saying we need priority 
was an issue. The standard terminology in terms of this sort of problem when a pilot encounters a distress condition is to declare an emergency by beginning their initial communication with Mayday, preferably repeated three times. So you say Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Um, you know, if you see movies, and they'll do this in movies, you know, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Or they can use Pan, Pan, you may hear sometimes, or just the word emergency. Just say emergency. I'm having an emergency. And as soon as you say the word emergency, it's like you flip a switch and they know, okay, we need to get that plane down because you don't drop the word emergency lightly when you're in flight. Uh, you know, you're, you're in an enormous tin can, um, thousands of feet above the ground full of people. When you say emergency, they don't want you up there. They want you on the ground and they want you safe on the ground. So they want to land you as quickly as possible. That is like the magic word. Priority is not the magic word. Um, and the first officer did not use the standard terminology. He used priority. When the air traffic control heard priority, they thought it meant to land and did not, priority to land, excuse me, and did not notify the next air traffic controller of a fuel issue before they passed the plane on. It was another instance of them making an assumption, not clarifying the confusing issues that they were having. The flight crew and would end up, too, speaking to like six different air traffic controllers in the New York area that night. I remember when I talked about that page and a half, two pages of information on air traffic controllers. It wasn't just, um, uh, you know, it wasn't just, a, you know, about one air traffic controller. It was about six, six different paragraphs, six or seven different paragraphs about air traffic controllers, each one like a little bio on each one that they spoke with. Um, and they spoke with so many and it would be very um, understandable if information didn't get passed from one another. It's like a big game of telephone. Uh, Boeing training may also have given pilots the understanding that priority and emergency meant the same thing. Um, you know, when I kind of wrote that sentence out, I thought of Arrival, which I mentioned in the last episode, which I keep thinking about because it's a really good movie. Um, but at one point in the movie, um, there is a reference to the word weapon and the word tool and how, um, you know, you know, one can be both, one can be, you know, something can be both, something can be, you know, the words mean don't always mean the same thing. You know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And that's the weird thing about, you know, words and, you know, the English language. Um, that was something else too. And the, and the NTSB report, there's a reference to a foreign airline captain who referred to non-US airline pilots with quote unquote 20, 200 word vocabularies flying into the US. So they really, um, you know, you have a lot of people who, for whom English is a second language that they may have only learned so that they could become commercial airline pilots. And it, that, you know, when that comes in mind, you end up with only certain words that they're going to know. And so, um, that's the kind of thing that you're having an issue with. You're having an issue with people who, um, are using a word in one language, which may not mean the same thing in another language. That's another thing that comes up in the air traffic control, um, air investig, um, aircraft investigations episode, excuse me, um, is that one of the passengers is, uh, talking about this issue at the end of the episode. And she says, um, you know, when somebody says priority in this culture, um, it means I need help. I need help now. I need priority. I need to be, you know, pay attention to me. I need help. Um, and so when I saw priority used as a quote from the Lamia crash, I thought, oh, there it is again. You know, it's, it's the same culture. It's, it's the same country, the same culture coming up again. And it's, you know, it's, uh, an issue that, you know, it's a lost in translation sort of issue. There was also, you know, the issue that Avianca publications were using the word priority in reference to low fuel situations. So when you go through these publications, it's saying priority and not emergency. That's where they're kind of, you know, they're just getting this reinforcement that priority is an okay word to use where when you get up here and you use it, they're expecting the word emergency, pan, 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 mayday. They're expecting certain words, but they're not getting those words out of you. The NTSB conclusions were that the um, 
uh, were multiple, which is a, ha what happens in a lot of these crashes. You know, there's usually, I, I think I've said it before, there's usually not one reason why a disaster happens. It's a, it's a series of events, a series of reasons that add up to a disaster happening. In this uh, point, there were uh, the crash report makes four points. Um, there were failures of the flight crew to properly assess their fuel status and communicate it to air traffic control. Um, there's bad weather in the northeast leading to difficulties landing planes in an orderly fashion and prolonged holding patterns as a result. Uh, there's air traffic control mishandling of the flight and a lack of attempting to clarify tr confusing transmissions. And then there was um, um, Federal Aviation Administration traffic management and their sort of decision to order, um, you know, uh, the high rate of landings that they needed to to um, get done that particular night, even with the weather weather and all of these things, all of these things that kind of combined to lead to this crash. Uh, the DAAC, um, the Colombian uh, NTSB, uh, disagreed with some of these aspects. Um, they weren't the only ones. Um, in, I think it's one of these things where when you have human error that causes a disaster, people don't want to admit that humans could have caused the error because then you're saying, um, you know, that person caused the error. And in some cases, you know, people don't want to do that, you know, especially when it's a relative or a family member or a friend, you know, well, I knew them really well and they wouldn't have done that. Or, you know, I don't, you know, I don't believe, I know my father wouldn't do that. Or I know, you know, you see that with a couple of different crashes, especially on air traffic, uh, air crash investigations, when they interview family members and it is human error, or it may look like suicide and a couple of plane crashes, um, the family will be the first to say, well, no, I don't, you know, he would never, you know, so it's got to be something else. And so there's controversy there. The airplane was valued um, by the airline at about $5 million. Uh, the crash caused property damage about a quarter of a million. In July 1990, Avianca offered families of the deceased and the injured victims $75,000 in compensation. Uh, but the U.S. United States government uh, joined with Avianca to pay damages for victims injured in the crash and the families of those who died um, to the tune of about $200 million. So they were compensated. They were taken care of. Um, you know, it just kind of took a little poking and prodding, I guess. Um, in the summer of 1990, there were two more fuel emergencies which would occur on Avianca flights. Uh, in June, a flight declared a minimum fuel situation and landed with only 10 minutes uh, worth of fuel left. In, and in August, a flight 20 declared that they only had 15 minutes of fuel left. So they you know, declared the emergency, they were cleared to land immediately, and then it turned out the plane had two hours of fuel left. So, you know, better safe than sorry. I, you, that's probably one of those situations where, you know, if they think they have 15 minutes of fuel left, bring them down. Uh, the Flight 52 crash also led Nassau County to develop a new, more comprehensive disaster plan. There was just so much chaos in the aftermath with everything that happened that um, they really made an effort to use it as a learning experience and, excuse me, use it as a learning experience and uh, form a m better, more detailed plan about what to do if something like this occurred again. There's not a real memorial that I could see, you know, not a plaque or anything like that. Um, it did happen on private land, so that may be why. Um, I'm not exactly sure if the same person lives on that particular property as did back then, but, um, you know, it, it did pass um, the 20th and the 25th anniversary a couple of years ago. Um, you know, they do have memorials, they do, you know, um, have, you know, services and that sort of thing to remember the people who passed away in the New York area. So, um, you know, people do remember that crash. Um, but that, that was what I thought about when I first saw the news about La Mia, uh, the La Mia flight was, you know, everybody else was kind of focusing on the soccer team. And, and at first I kind of was too, because my initial thought was it's a Brazilian soccer team. You know, when a, when a, when a sports team goes down in the Andes, I immediately think of the Uruguayan Air Force flight that went down and, you know, that's the story of Alive. But that's a Uruguayan rugby team, not a Brazilian soccer team. And it's just, you know, this is the kind of thing that happens with me and, and plane crashes. When plane crashes happen, I tend to, um, 
I tend to become sort of a backseat NTSB investigator. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the... Um, kind of a thing where I'll be watching the news um, and I, I, I can remember specifically uh, the um, uh, Malaysian flight that was shot down um, over the Ukraine um, uh, watching that in the, the house with my great aunt and saying to her after watching the news for about three minutes that plane got shot down this is before anybody knew it was shot down. I said that plane got shot down. It was just like it was just a series of uh, I can't even remember which things I saw in that particular newscast and what facts that I saw. It was literally within hours of it being shot down. But um, before people knew that it had been shot down specifically, um, it, it was just you know a plane has crashed. This is what's happened. This is what people saw, and you know it was in the early moments after a plane crash like that you really have to take with a grain of salt what witnesses saw um because witnesses may provide information that they think they saw they may um you know they may say they saw fire on a wing where they really didn't and they you know may have been like you know it's really eyewitness it's, um eyewitness accounts are kind of be spotty anyway so you know, in that sort of instance, I do get a little hesitant when listening to eyewitness accounts. But um, in that particular case, I just remember turning to my aunt at one point and saying, "That that plane fell out of the sky. That plane got shot down by somebody." And I think I think my great aunt may have thought I was nuts, but um, <laughs> I, I it was just the information that I had in front of me because I've watched so many episodes of air crash investigations and read so many NTSB reports and read up on so many plane crashes that by this point I can probably tell you how a plane crashed within about um, two or three news stories in the immediate aftermath of a crash. Um, you know, and the same thing went with the Lamia flight. As soon as I came down, I, I, I wasn't really sure. As soon as I saw, though, in a news report, one of the first news, rep news reports that I read, I think it was like the second or third one, that they said, our power is going out and we're out of fuel. That was my immediate thought was, they ran out of fuel and the power went out. It's not that the power went out and they ran out of fuel. It was the fuel ran out, therefore the engine stopped and the power went out because of Avianca Flight 52. That's where I learned it from. And, you know, I've said before, I learned, I learned science on some level because of these plane crashes that I read up on. Um, there was um, a class that I thought about taking when I went back to college um, and I was flipping through classes one day and I saw that they had a science of flight class and I thought maybe I might take it. Um, it wasn't something that I needed for my major um, but at the same time I was like well that would be interesting and I already know how planes fly. Um, of course the thing is that most of how I know how planes fly is how they crash when they don't um <laughs> you know which would kind of be morbidly amusing to walk into a class where i'm not a science major i really probably shouldn't be taking up the space for somebody who is and to say oh yes i know i know so much about plane crashes plane flight uh you know uh flight you know and the physics of it and how it works because i read way too much about plane crashes um <laughs> But yeah, this is the flight that I thought about almost immediately as soon as I read those first news stories about this. And I really wanted to share the information about it um, so that, you know, you can understand that that uh, flights like this, um, crashes like this, the reason that they investigate them in every little detail is so they can prevent them from happening again. And clearly it doesn't always work, but um, especially when you have something like human error, if human error... Um, uh, happens, you can fight it, but you know, people are people and people are going to screw up, even pilots. They don't screw up all the time. Don't be afraid when you get on an airplane. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but this is, you know, you really can only do so much to fight human error. Um, you know, and inevitably somebody is going to make the same mistake all over again. And in this case, they apparently did. Um, I do hesitate to say any more than that um, because 
it is so early in the investigation. It's only been a week, week and a half at this point, and it's really something that maybe I shouldn't even be talking about. I, this soon after a disaster, I'm really hesitant to, to kind of um, touch anything because they do have to do investigations. They do have to look into things and kind of setting your foot down and saying, okay, this is what caused it. This is what happened is a little a little um, problematic, especially when they still have things that they need to look into. There may be more information that's going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. There may be things about the, the pilots. Maybe they were tired and that's why they made the mistake of not refueling. So then you have fatigue playing into this. There may be stress behind the scenes in terms of um, their jobs or um, their personal lives and that could be, be affecting this and that's the thing they have to look at everything these investigators have to check everything in these people's lives to make sure that um, n you know there may not be something that there may be something that they're missing that is also affecting the performance of these pilots and if that's an issue they have to make sure that it's not affecting other pilots so the same plane crash doesn't happen again for the same reason but like I said a little early in the investigation, stepping away from that. Um, the uh, next episode that I plan to do, I am buckling down this weekend to try and get as much done as possible. Um, I don't want to say what it is, but I will say it is a big name disaster. Um, even if you know nothing about disasters, you know about this one. And it's also a type of disaster that I haven't done yet. So, you know, this should be interesting. Um, we'll see how it goes. Um, but again, I do want to thank those of you who've been, um, who've donated to the Kickstarter. I would ask, please donate to the Kickstarter if you can. Um, I want to improve everything about this podcast. I want to do it for Christmas and you don't have to throw in, you know, um, the people who've been donating so, so far have been really generous. You don't have to be that generous. I understand what the holidays are like. Um, you know, five bucks here, 10 bucks there, you know, a couple bucks. You don't have to throw like a whole huge amount of money. Um, but if you'd like to throw in a couple of bucks just to say thank you, um, I would really, 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 really appreciate it. Um, but thank you so much, you guys, for listening all of this year. And uh, thanks for those of you who have um, shared with your friends and, and written nice um, reviews on iTunes that I'm almost a little terrified to read because I'm really self-conscious and it's five stars and I'm really happy. Um, but thank you so much for all of that. And um, I will see you on the next episode. Until next time, stay safe.